Welcome to the Three Vital V's. My name's Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And on this episode, we're going to continue to discuss the second Vital V of variety. But this time, we're going to be focusing on increasing the variety of voices that exist inside the text that we populate the English curriculum with. So last time, we talked about variety of purpose. And really, that's variety of purposes the students could use. Purposes that cover a wide variety of why people write in general. Like Flipper, he's a purpose, right? Oh, wait, no, he's a dolphin. Anyway, so here's my question. I know that there are multiple types of variety, right? So that's variety of purposes. I tend to think when I think variety, a variety of like books, people who write different books, right? But every time that I start talking about that type of variety, you tend to talk about canon. And I am familiar with canon, like this is canon, saying that like this counts towards Star Wars or the Bible, right? But what is canon when talking about the English classroom? Because I, I genuinely am not 100% sure on this. The canon are the great works, the audience can't see it, but I just did air quotes, of literature that you tend to expect to be taught inside a stereotypical English classroom. Shakespeare, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Homer, etc. The stuff that, that we've been teaching for 100 plus years in mm -hmm. the English class, that stuff would be what you expect to be a canon. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with any of these authors, but they tend to fall into the same category. Heterosexual, white, upper-class, Western males. This is the same category that makes up what some view as the dominant culture. Their pivotal position in the literary canon results in female voices and voices of black, Latinx, Indian, biracial, Asian, non-Christian, LBGTQ+, and disabled communities being silenced. In order to ensure these voices are not being silenced, we must frequently allow their presence to be felt among those that make up the canon. Luckily, bringing these non-canonical voices from outside the dominant culture provides teachers with a wealth of learning opportunities. So essentially, you're like taking things that kids, especially we teach in Southeast Missouri, voices that they usually wouldn't have heard say anything and then providing them the opportunity to hear those voices in the classroom via excerpts, as we referred yes, to uh, earlier. Via excerpts or just via writing, just their voices are present. So people that they normally wouldn't hear from or people that they actually share a lot with, that they never get to see that other people share these views, they can actually see those inside the literature. So you mentioned learning opportunities from doing this. I'm already having some come to mind, but what are some of the ones that you're referring to? Hands down. The most important and timely opportunity they provide us with is a safe avenue to have substantive discussions about race with. Okay, so this is a time where everything racially charged all over the place and people are terrified to talk about it, I feel like. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this is an avenue to talk about race? Well, like you just said, most white teachers and white students are actually afraid to talk about race where individuals that are from different quote-unquote non-dominant racial groups are used to talking about it pretty much non-stop. They talk mm -hmm. about it at the kitchen table all the time, where in white communities, it's a taboo thing that's not supposed to be mentioned. Mm -hmm. Basically, this provides us a safe opportunity to remove that stigma that comes from it, mainly because white students and teachers are afraid that they might say something that is racially insensitive. They might say something that might hurt somebody's feelings mm -hmm. uh, because they're ignorant in how these discussions go on. But we give them the place where they can actually have them, and this helps remove the chance of silent racism because not talking about these issues is the way that the silent racism persists. And in order for us to make gains when it comes to racial relations, we actually have to talk about it. We can't just sweep it under the rug and ignore it. 
I thought in order to make gains, you had to, like, take creatine and pump iron. Sorry, wrong kind of game, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that you're right in this. This is something that I have actually seen a little bit in my social studies classroom, is I've been allowing students to go find articles from the past week or two weeks of news and bring those articles in and present the articles to the classroom. And I've seen a whole bunch of avenues open up for that kind of dialogue. I guess I had never really thought of it in the terms, though, of a new voice speaking in the classroom. But that's really what it is. Yeah, because think about it in, like, the stereotypical social studies classroom. Most of the time, they're not allowed to talk about those things. It's, here's what, I, what the great history told us, and this is the only type of history that you can look at. Yeah, and we we talk about kind of, you know, we have actually joked about in the past the idea of, like, top-down history versus bottom-up history and how allowing these other voices you're allowing people who don't get to speak in the grand scheme of things to speak um so what that's essentially what you're doing here with all of this and to piggyback on top of what you were saying yeah like these past couple of years during this master's program i've never turned away from having racial discussions mm -hmm. but i have embraced it to the point where like we have a chance to talk about it i'll bring it up that way we can have this open dialogue and i will say that with my black students like we have had a big shift in how they engage and participate within class just because we're actually talking about these things that they want to talk about that no one else ever wants to talk about mm -hmm. and they because it's too taboo yeah so what along with that and that that is an awesome opportunity in and of itself but what are some of the other opportunities that may present themselves along with that when you allow non-dominant voices in the room well, another book that I read throughout this entire master's program was Why All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. Mm -hmm. And in that, she kind of discusses about how due to the fact that we have this silent racism, that race is a thing that people aren't allowed to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, students, when they're trying to find their identity to try to figure out who they are, and especially with their racial identity, they'll turn to mass media to see how they're supposed to act. Mm -hmm. The big problem with that is often mass media portray stereotypes of how different ethnic groups are supposed to act. Mm -hmm. And so they'll think that the only way that they could truly be Latinx, the only way they could truly be African-American is they have to act like these particular stereotypes. Which very often the stereotypes are not even created by people from those cultures. They're created by people from the dominant culture. The most harmful part of this is that often those stereotypes show that if you are academic, you are not playing into your racial identity. Mm -hmm. But providing more voices can show, no, there are black people who are academic. There are Latinx people who are academic. These are people that uh, enjoy doing these things. It's okay to actually like school. It's okay to do well at school because here are examples, here are role models that actually participate in academia, but they don't do so in a whitewashed fashion. They stay true to who they are racially. Mm -hmm. And we're providing them with positive role models to show, hey, you can actually do these things. These are not just exclusively white things. I, just coming to mind off the top of my head is somebody like a Richard Sherman who is incredibly good at having discussions about things and went to like Harvard or somewhere and he's a pro sports player and yet he is able to have Richard Sherman went to uh, Stanford. Stanford, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I, I apologize. But yeah, so being these things that are very traditionally considered white but in reality they're just him being successful and he's able to prove, no, I am who I am and I stand in my identity. However, these are my accomplishments. Yeah, and another excellent source that you go to are people that went through the HBCUs, the Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Mm -hmm. There is a very proud 
history and lineage with those particular programs that have produced really stellar and interesting individuals that regardless of your race, you probably want to learn about how these people think and how these people interact with the wider world. And they often get ostracized mainly because of them not being from dominant canon. Yeah, that just exposes a blind spot even for me because I'm looking for, like, the Ivy League schools, these specific schools. And you're not looking at the Black Ivies. Exactly. (laughs) I'm not at all because in my head, I haven't even learned that those are out there. I couldn't name them for you, right? And so that in and of itself, I think, is speaking to the fact that we need these things because even as a teacher, I couldn't have identified that, you know, until this conversation. So is there any other things along with the quality role models, anything else that we can uh, learn from this. The biggest thing that these voices bring to us is a growth mindset. Because mm-hmm. often in these canonical white authors, they kind of promote a fixed mindset where you had to naturally have this talent. You had to naturally be smart in order to succeed. That's because they were born on third base. But uh, with these voices that aren't from the dominant canon, you see more of a growth mindset where they essentially show how they failed, how they changed, how they kept working, and how they succeeded, and how they didn't let that failure bring them down. They weren't just born with this natural skill. They weren't mm-hmm. just born with this natural intelligence. No, it was something that they had to work hard at to get to where they were at. And so it provides us with plenty of excellent things show about with growth mindset, which Carol Dweck is the professor that usually is the big person that pushes growth mindset. And one of the things she talks about is in order to help get kids to understand what a growth mindset is and get them into a growth mindset is actually introduce them to stories in which the main characters, the protagonist are demonstrating growth mindset qualities and authors who are not from the canon, who are from these non-dominant portions of society are an excellent source to allow us to see these types of of stories. I had some authors come to mind actually as you were saying that. If you are looking for that kind of thing, there's a guy named Lecrae and his book Unashamed is really interesting talking about how he owns a, a record label and his growth through all of that and that mindset is what you're talking about, but he doesn't ever call it that. But oh, that will like... never outright call it a growth mindset. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's one of those layers that you need to add on to the literature. Like while you're reading it, you add the layer of like, how does this apply to the growth mindset? How does this apply to that concept that we've talked about before? Mm-hmm. And so as we're looking, as we're trying to find things, I know I just... You gave a source, but I, there's I other sources there. that we can get, go yeah, to. Yeah, so what what are some good places that we can find these kind of voices? The best, believe it or not, is another type of literature that is kind of viewed as juvenile and kind of pushed to the side, YA literature. That is one of the best sources to find the texts that provide avenues for non-dominant voices, although it is often looked down on by many as quote-unquote juvenile or beneath canonical or adult counterparts, YA Lit is actually more impactful on students because it is many things at once. YA explores a wide variety of topics, all within that same like coming-of-age story structure, but they explore so many different ideas, concepts, and themes that they chunk in there because you just how turbulent adolescence is in Mm -hmm. people's lives and also the added benefit is the main characters the protagonist of these stories reflect their own concerns because their adolescence it's written from the perspective of adolescence so they can see themselves more in line with that which kylan beers who wrote 
why kids can't read, she often talks about these different levels of literary appreciation. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, I think it's like level two or level three, where they say students want to see stories in which they can see themselves in. And far too often than not, in high school, we don't allow them to see themselves in the stories. We have them read adult literature and say, no, this YA stuff, that's trash. That's beneath you. You could do better than that. But no, YA actually has a lot of benefit to bring to the table. Yeah, and I do see like... I, I kind of, in my head, have always had this meter of, like, looking at the kids who are the highest performing kids in my class and trying to figure out why. They all read. As, and exactly. <laughs> they're, it's almost always the kids who finish a test and get out a book. And I would say at least 60% of the time, the book they get out is a, YA book? Is, is a young adult novel that I would probably never read because I'm just not really interested in it personally. And I know this doesn't necessarily go into what we're talking about with mm -hmm. variety. It actually kind of goes back to volume. But YA literature is a lot shorter to get through compared to a traditional canonical counterpart. It is. And I, although I have seen kids reading young adult literature that is like thicker than the Lord of the Rings canon together. It's about the size of the text they print. Oh, okay. But it, it just <laughs> looks huge. And I'm like, holy cow. And they'll, you know, read it in a week. And then the next week they're in with another book. But anyway, just point being that... It is those books that I see kids reading, and those are the kids who are performing the best and who can have the most substantive discussions because they know how to use language properly, which goes back to the reading and writing conversation. Exactly. It's, it's all, almost, it's almost it's like coming there's together. a reason why we're doing this. It is. It's all coming together. Well, I'm excited. We've looked now at the first couple of V's. We have volume. We have variety. What's the very next thing we get to talk about? The final V is going to be value. And believe it or not, the first thing that we're going to talk about within value also kind of talks about variety. This was a TDWG presentation. Ooh.